Welcome to FF Plus, a spoiler-free outlet for movie reviews, entertainment recommendations, and discussion. And today, interviews. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me as usual is my co-host, Patrick. Today, we'll be interviewing Blake J. Harris, the author of 2014's book, Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle that Defined a Generation, and Blake's co-director on the adaptation of his book into Console Wars, the documentary film, Mr. Jonah Tulis. The film is currently streaming on CBS All Access and is available now. Let's get to the interview. All right, guys, welcome to the show. We want to start off by asking Blake about your book. How did you get the idea for Console Wars in the first place? Good question. Thanks for having us on. Uh, I mean, essentially, before I ever wrote Console Wars, it was just because I wanted to read Console Wars or a book like Console Wars. This was back in 2011. My favorite books to read have always been behind the scenes business stories, you know, character driven histories. And I remember going to a Barnes and Noble in Manhattan, where I lived at the time, and this gigantic Barnes and Noble, looking around the video, uh, looking, sorry, around the film history section and the music history section. And I was shocked that there was not only no video game history section, but in the entire store, there was nothing about video games. There wasn't a single book available about the history of gaming or the business of gaming. And, you know, I was perplexed by that. And then I started doing some research and seeming, it seemed like there was this great epic story about Sega versus Nintendo, this eventual clash of the titans that began as a David and Goliath tale. And then I started reaching out to the people who had worked at Sega and Nintendo. And, you know, given how uh, unsuccessful I was as a writer at the time, it, it was, uh, you know, it was, uh, not a very successful process, but it was it was like a numbers game and 10 or 15% of people would respond. And that was better than nothing. And slowly but surely, I started putting together this story and getting this access and then seeing this epic battle that I think I just feel like we were so fortunate to get to tell. Now, at the time you wrote the book, were you working at that time as a writer for various websites? Were you involved in the video game world at all? That would have been a good thing and would have helped <laughs> with getting the book off the ground. But no, at that point and for the previous seven years, so actually my entire 20s, literally until the day of my 30th birthday, I had a day job trading commodities at a financial brokerage for Brazilian clients. So buying and selling uh, sugar and coffee and soybeans by day. And then at night, I was working with my uh, writing partner and uh, good friend, Jonah, who's also with us today on screenwriting and film production stuff. And then eventually, of course, on the documentary about Sega and Nintendo. And so, yeah, so it, it, like, I think that part of the reason that this project is so special to us beyond just the story itself is that it was life-changing to write this book. It was a dream come true to be able to do this full-time and to have this, you know, this this great starting point for a story. That's awesome. And Jonah, that was actually what I wanted to ask next was, so how far back do you and Blake go? And then how did you get involved in the documentary project? I actually wasn't aware you were involved in writing the book. So that's cool to find out. No, I, so I wasn't involved in writing the book. I mean, basically, so we've, we've been writing partners for many years. We actually went to high school together, but weren't really close. We connected after high school and uh, wrote a few things, developed a few things, got some heat, but we never really were like, we weren't making movies. I had just finished post on a doc I did called Such Great Heights when Blake bought this brought this idea and he actually came to me he's like I think I got an idea here this is really interesting it's gonna be I think it should be a book and I was like it should be a doc too and, it, and then he's like you know what it could be like the social network of video games too so we had all these grand ideas we're like you know what if one of these three hits you know that's amazing if there's a book if there's a doc if there's a feature if there's a tv series amazing we're gonna that's amazing 
And we decided, okay, we worked with our manager, Julian Rosenberg, and we took the project to Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, you know, sort of as the book, the doc, the feature. And we had a relationship. It made us sound much more successful than we were. Like we had a meeting with someone at Seth's company months before a general meeting. You didn't go to lunch with Seth? Yeah, we didn't like miss Seth and we're like, we had a nice two-hour meeting. great new project for you. Like that was life-changing also to even just get a meeting with Seth and Evan and James Weaver back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they were on board the next day. They wanted to finance the doc. They wanted to write the forward for the book and help push the book forward. And they wanted to uh, make a movie and like a lot of the social network. And we initially set up the, the social network type project at Sony Pictures, Columbia Pictures. And we were executive producers on that. And Blake, you know, sold the book. And we started production on the doc around the same time. They kind of were running parallel. They were running parallel. It's just, you know, the doc was tied up with the IP. And it took a long, long time, especially when we transitioned it into a TV series as well. You know, the you know doc costs a lot of money. So it takes, it, it takes a lot of time and a lot of people and a lot of creative minds get involved. And we're just so happy it's finally out and you know, the world gets to see it. So when you look at the documentary against the book, and both are really, really great. I remember listening to the audio, listening, reading. I can't remember. I borrow a lot of stuff from Aaron, and he listens to a lot. You of listened. It, it, we I had listened. an audio book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and particular shout out to the narrator Fred Berman, who does it, is like incredible job. And also to Jonah's point that this was a we were concurrently developing the documentary as I was writing the book. We were able to. Sh- I was able to share stuff with Fred Berman to show here's what these guys sound like. Of course, it's your interpretation of Tom Kalinske and Peter Maine, but like we had that source material to give him. But yeah, so I quit. The, I'm just always, Fred, Fred Berman did a great job with the audiobook. Sorry for the interruption. No, that's okay. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I didn't know that both the doc and the book were really kind of being fleshed out concurrently. I mean, I know you guys have kind of hinted at that, but when you were putting the documentary together, I noticed you know, in being familiar with the book, obviously the story structure is a little different. I think the book goes back and forth between Nintendo and Sega and Nintendo and Sega and the documentary really kind of hits you with Sega's going to take down Nintendo because Nintendo's the bad guy. And then it, at the back half of the documentary, it kind of gives you the backstory behind Nintendo. What kind of decision-making went into what to cut from the the book, what to add to it, how the story structure was going to be laid out in the documentary? I mean, that's a really good point. I mean, our point of view for this was very much, well, I mean, that's a two-part question, but we'll start with the first. Our point of view on this was, you know, we wanted to show Nintendo as the audience sees them in the first four minutes, which is this magical, incredible company with Howard Phillips leading it. But then, you you know, we kind of, the thing was surprising for us is we discovered that Nintendo was this controlling company, you know, getting antitrust violations. And, you know, that was really fascinating to us. And not only was it fascinating, they talked about it and were very very conscious of it, of how they were controlling of retailers. And so we wanted to show that, you know, show the underdog Tom, you know, and this team of misfits at Sega taking on this behemoth who had 95% of the market and overcoming them. And then once they overcame them, we wanted to show, wait a second, they had their own David and Goliath story years back. They were fighting the ghosts of Atari. They were this way, they're controlling way so that they could resurrect the industry and not allow bad games on their platform and not allow the market to crash. And I thought that that was probably the most important thing we did. You know, there was a cut way back when where we started just, let's just see the whole story straightforward. And you don't kind of get the same, when you see Nintendo's humble origins, which you see later in the film now, you can't really take them as seriously when they're as controlling. And that was why it was really important for us to kind of reveal that story later. And it, it, I think it was fun. It was fun and a playful way to do it. Yeah, in a sense, it uh, mirrored our experiences with learning about the story in that, like Jonah said, there's this opening 
teaser that's montage about the evolution of gaming and sort of a child's eye POV into gaming that culminates with these Christmas gifts being opened and getting the ultimate prize, the NES in the late 80s and early 90s. And that was how we thought of gaming when we were growing up. That was all gaming was. It wasn't people in boardrooms making decisions. It was like things coming from the heavens that somehow ended up in our living rooms. And then as we started working on the story, mostly talking to Sega people at that time, because they were the ones much more uh, excited to talk about this era and also much more open, you know, Nintendo employees, like Nintendo, the company itself, Nintendo employees are notoriously tight-lipped and not very open even when they speak with you. And so we were hearing about how Nintendo was this big bully and how they faced antitrust litigation and how they were not giving developers and consumers all these choices. And so we wanted to depict that as part of this David and Goliath story. And then as we spent time with the Nintendo people and at least saw it from their point of view, even if maybe sometimes I didn't agree with it or it felt more like a justification for behavior, we at least wanted to give them the opportunity to have the story told from that point of view, which I think gives a lot more balance to it and is particularly important for doing for the documentary because, you know, many stories in life feel like they're stories of heroes and villains, but when you actually hear it from the villain's perspective, they think that they're the hero, and that's really fascinating. Well, I would wonder sometimes as I watch this story play out, what would a documentary look like if Sega wasn't involved, right? If you just walk through the history of Nintendo, would they look like a villain? And I was reminded of the documentary The King of Kong, where... The creators, I think, almost intentionally set up this hero villain right. idea so that it would become more engaging. And I think you guys really hit that in a solid way by setting Nintendo up not to be the bad guy, but to be kind of the antagonist in order to really elevate what Sega was bringing to the market and why they were doing that. That's the thing that I gained from both the doc and the book was that I was a Sega guy and I liked Nintendo, but I was a Sega guy. But I, I found myself reaching back into my adolescent brain going, yeah, because Nintendo sucks, only it didn't. <laughs> and, and, and I think that's, that's really effective, especially for our generation of Gen Xers who grew up with both, because you didn't really think about that as a kid. You just thought about what you're talking about, great games. You know, and if Nintendo had a great game, cool. If Sega had a great game, cool. But not everybody had both consoles and those that didn't went to their best friend's house because they had the other one. And so you got the best of both worlds. But I think you guys really, really nailed it when it came to catching that tone of the hero, villain, antagonist, protagonist between the two companies. Thank you. And I think like what you're touching on too is important, especially in our current climate. Is like There was a tribalism to it where your, your initial gut instinct was like, yeah, screw Nintendo, Sega rocks. And I felt that way too, as a Sega owner. And that we were like, specifically, that was the goal of these people, especially Sega being so marketing focused. And in our current climate, I feel like that tribalism leads to a lot of problems. And maybe I'm just, you know, looking at this through rose colored glasses, but I, you know, I, I see most of the benefits of that tribalism with gaming because it, at most it led to schoolyard bickering, not actual fights, not online hatred. And like, it get, and, and, the benefit of tribalism is it gives you a sense of belonging. And Sega definitely gave that to me at an age when I needed to find things in my identity and find a sense of community. And Sega really did, you know, make me feel like I was part of this next level thing. I was part of the future. I was, you know, I, I was no longer a little baby playing with my Nintendo games. I was, a, you know, I was a man. I was, uh, I was growing up. So like that, that was also, I would say, you know, I think back on as one of the more important revelations for Jonah and I that, maybe we don't think about it as much as just our changing perspectives of marketing. You know, uh, I think that a lot of people don't have the highest opinion of marketing and think of, uh, you know, that it's just television ads and print advertisements. 
or maybe now digital ads, but like at, at its core marketing is about messaging and the messaging of a company and what they want you to feel when you have their products and what they will be able to provide you is important, especially with the company with Sega, where I would say one of their most important innovations that they brought to the industry was listening to customers. Whereas Nintendo, for better or for worse, was like, here's what we think is good. You will buy it or you will not. And it almost always was good, but it was not tailored to the specific audience. And Sega was very much about giving that, you know, about empowering their, 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 their about empowering gamers. Adding to that, that like, you know, Sega, again, we, we focus a lot on these guys who are marketing, marketing, marketing for Sega and marketing for Nintendo. We weren't focusing on the designers overseas because Sega came into the market with 5%, barely 5%. and they wouldn't have gone past 10% even if they had Sonic without these, these guys behind them. They, were, they, they weren't able to sell in Walmart. They weren't able, they were not even a blip on the radar until Tom and his team lit a fire under the video game market and kind of was able to allow these games and these systems to break through. And that's what kind of really drew us to the story that like, holy crap, oh, you know, this is like, th- th- these guys just went in there and did it. Yeah, because I, I remember as a kid, you don't even think about this at all. But if you know, I feel like on some level, you just assume that the world is this giant meritocracy where the things that are good are good. You know, have happened because they are better than the rest, and that the cream rises to the top. Um, and we know that that doesn't happen in many facets of life. But but especially like with the video games, you thought, oh yeah, the best video games are the ones that are made, and the ones that are the best of the ones that are made are the ones that are in stores. But the Walmart example is something that we love because Walmart refused to carry Sega products not because they were inferior to Nintendo, but just because there was a business relationship with Nintendo and Nintendo was exerting their power to say, don't carry competitors products. So without the business tactics, a game like Sonic never would have been available to many of many people, regardless of how good or bad you think that that game is. And so that was, you know, I think, sort of one of the early eye-opening experiences to us of like why this business story is so important and how it's, you know, it's not just guys in stuffy boardrooms saying like, oh, we should make it $9.99. No, $10.99. Like it was actually, you know, very active and risky decisions that led to tangible results and memorable results for us as kids that of course at the time we couldn't have appreciated. But I always like imagine it as like the, you know, the backstage to our childhood, like seeing like, here's why all that stuff that I experienced happened. It was because these people were doing this and pulling these strings and trying to accomplish this. And in many cases it worked. Yeah. And as a guy who, I mean, I was a Nintendo guy over Sega mostly, but I mean, I had them all and ultimately I'm a Sony guy. So I get like a blip at the end of the documentary that appeals to me, but you know, it, it has gone forward to the console wars that we have today with Sony and Microsoft. And ultimately that competition, just as we saw with Sega and Nintendo, it drives the quality up. It forces Nintendo to become better and better and better because otherwise you stagnate. And if people are just going to buy your stuff because it's on the shelves, then you have no need to continue to up your quality. But when somebody's pushing you and competing against you, it's going to make the product better for the consumer. And I think you guys did a great job of showing that as well. You didn't villainize either side at all, ultimately. Even though you had so many fun little graphics, and that's the other thing I wanted to make sure we asked about, because I told you when I emailed you, Blake, I loved this part, or maybe it was on Twitter, but this part of the documentary, My Kids, it appealed to them in a big way. I have a 15-year-old son, and I have an 18-year-old daughter who is in her final year of college, or no, sorry, final year of high school, but she actually goes to college too far ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she's actually in college, you know, like it's early or whatever. And she's going to be a game designer and she just ate this up, this whole story, everything about it. She thought it was amazing. And they 
were locked in because of the fun little animations that you did. The fight scenes with the Japanese head of Sony, you know, getting his hair spun up in the helicopter, things like that. Where did those ideas come from for you guys? We wanted to be in the room with these guys. And as much amazing archivals we had, we didn't have a lot of like in the boardroom. If you take Take, for instance, the Tom going to Japan to meet with the, to give his four point plan. You know, how are we supposed to illustrate that scene? So we started, we were like, we want to use video game animation. We want to use cutscenes. We want this style. But every scene is so different. When you have Tom walking into Sega and it's kind of a podunk office for the first time, it's okay to use this sort of funky 8-bit, 16-bit, you know, funny stuff, but how are we going to handle some of the more serious ones? And so we decided to work with uh, Mindbomb, who's an incredible animation studio, and they actually hand-drew the faces of these characters and then animated them so we could get the real, you could see their faces and their reactions, which was really important to us to sort of get the feelings inside of them beyond just seeing someone in 8-bit, 16-bit. And then with the more fun, playful scenes, we were able to like use a lot more of that. And, you know, really as a testament to Mindbomb, you know, we had our ideas and we had great ideas and they just, you know, multiplied that by 10 and would send us something that just blew us away. And I think also on a, on a more like abstract level or conceptual level, in my mind, it, it, a lot of it goes back to that first experience I had at Barnes and Noble of being in this giant bookstore, looking for a book that should have already existed, something that chronicled this story and finding that in this entire store, there wasn't anything on the game industry. And part of that is because the game industry has always been, you know, seen as sort of this bastard, you know, hasn't been appreciated properly in the same way that comic books, especially in pre-graphic novel era, were not really considered art. It was considered like this cheap, pulpy form of entertainment. And that's how video games have often been treated, something which I would disagree with. And thinking like, wow, you know, part of the re- like one way to change that is to write a book that is accessible to everybody or to tell the story in a way that is accessible to everybody to hardcore gamers, as well as people that really don't know anything about games. And, you know, that was early on in my writing. Like I said, I wasn't doing, uh, you know, writing for gaming outlets at that time. And so I early on developed a philosophy that I still carry through of, of wanting to do anything I do for my, with my grandma in mind, like how would, how could I get her to care about this? How could I get her to want to watch this documentary? And that's why it's so, you know, meaningful to us that, you know, it, that you had your children watching and that they also appreciate it probably in different ways, but that, you know, it was engaging to them and they could also enjoy it. Cause it's sometimes it's hard to balance doing something for a specific audience versus trying to capture other demographics. And this is such a universal story and such a fun, special story that we really wanted to make sure it could be enjoyed by as many people as possible. Well, and you guys captured that really, really well, because when I look at this story, you could, not this is not to undermine your story in and of itself, but you could insert Apple and Microsoft in the same kind of thing where you have these competing things that are familiar to a lot of people, but not a lot of people know the in-depth pieces and parts of them. And I think the common ground that both of those stories have is people are somewhat familiar with these pieces. You don't have to be a gamer to enjoy console wars because the behind the scenes stuff that you guys told was so much more intriguing. It it didn't overshadow it, but it almost made those that were gamers of Nintendo and Sega back in the 80s and 90s almost hunting for Easter eggs at that point. Because when I'm watching this, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that game. Oh yeah, I remember playing that game. And oh, I got so excited when Contra came out. And when part of your documentary and part of your story 
hits at a place where I was like, oh yeah, I totally latched onto Sonic or I totally was about welcome to the next level. And I would always go around saying, Sega, you know, that those moments for people who were familiar with that added to the enjoyment. But I think even if you didn't have that kind of connection to those games or those game systems, or even those companies, you would still get a lot out of it. And obviously, Aaron, you're speaking truth from, from what your kids are are experiencing because yes, they're gamers, but they didn't grow up playing these two systems. I mean, they're well beyond. In fact, there's almost a pullback into more 8-bit type side-scrolling games that are all over the independent gaming industry, which I think is like hysterically wonderful because <laughs> it's not about the graphics, even though that's what we were all like. Right. <laughs> I, like, I want better graphics. Who cares what the games do? I just want graphics. And I think what's, what Nintendo did specifically was they didn't budge. They said, we're going to make quality and we're going to do it with our thumb on the backs of everyone who <laughs> wants our stuff, but we're going to give you quality. And to see that Sega came around and found ways to understand that they couldn't be Nintendo. They had to be Sega. How could they be that? And, and so, of course, when we get the attachment of licenses. So we get the Maddens and we get the Joe Montanas and the sports games. And that's that's what I gravitated towards as a kid. I was all about the sports games. You couldn't see that on Nintendo. You would always right. see it on, on Genesis. And it was a brilliant development, marketing, whatever you want to call it, way in which Sega could get into the market and say, hey, we can be here too. We don't have to be you. We can be us. And the way you guys kind of framed that in the story, I think was really, really effective. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I think that there's just so many good lessons and that, like, I've, it has changed my life to research and to tell this story. Like, just the two immediate things that come to mind, one you're talking about is Sega zagging where Nintendo zigged, like, you know, zigzagging or, or change, you know, doing what your competitor doesn't do for the sake of it is not always successful. But if you actually tap into, like, look, we're being honest with ourselves, as most companies and most people strive to be. We can't compete with ages 6 to 14. Nintendo was just so good at making these Mario-like games. So what else can we do? Okay, well, let's do stuff for an older audience. What would they like? What would games for them look like that was different? And also, you know, one of Jonah and I's favorite story in the book is the Walmart example where Sega sets up this uh, free store outside of Walmart's uh, flagship headquarters in Denville and, and, you know, offers the Genesis for free. And that is something that like could apply to all walks of life where you just think about gatekeepers and how it's these big monoliths that you think like I shout and no one hears me. And there's ways to try to work around that and try to get your voice heard. Or even if you can't change Walmart's mind, at least you can change the mind of who you're actually trying to reach the direct, you know, the consumers by having them come in and like your product. And, you know, I think that that was just such a big part of what Sega was all about was being customer friendly, being customer focused and listening to them. And that was such a divide from, you know, at Nintendo's philosophical core to give them like the most charitable interpretation. They were thinking video games are expensive, which they are that they were then and they are now. And if you're going to spend 50, 60 bucks on a game, we want to make sure that it's of a certain quality. And look, I'll say that over it's been 30 plus years and I've never bought a Nintendo game that wasn't worth the money. And I have bought Sega games and have bought games for PlayStation and Xbox that were not worth the money, but that's also because they, it's not because they're trying to sell us poor products. It's because they are giving more freedom to the developers to do whatever they want and to consumers to buy whatever they want. And so it was really just this big battle between freedom and control that is played out. Like you said, in sort of like, like Apple today is very much a controlling company. And you see these parallels play out a lot of times in all different industries.
Speaking of the Bentonville and Walmart thing, just so you guys know, so my favorite part was getting to see my Razorbacks in your documentary. I was like, yeah, let's go. That was extremely surprising. <laughs> but we are both from Arkansas originally. So right, I'm let me Seattle, ask you a quick but... question. What happened with Ryan Mallett? What, what, like in the NFL? Yeah, like he looked so good in college. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> it's all mental. You know, you know those guys. It's mental. Uh, he just yeah. he was he was too much of a kid. He's too immature. He couldn't handle the the drive to the grind. I think to get yeah. better, just it happens. And he had alcohol issues. You know, it's a uh, bummer. But I enjoyed seeing that. Jonah, I had a question for you about. You mentioned something about the, the social network, which is funny because I was going to actually make the comparison to how this story feels very similar to that. Do you guys have? Any plans still to turn this into anything dramatized like a miniseries or a movie? I know at one point when the Seth Rogen partnership got announced, I think that the doc was supposed to be a documentary miniseries. Is that correct? That's and then it so turned initially. Initially, the plan was okay. So the social network is a perfect example. Another one that sort of was a later Moneyball. I think is really sort of an interesting comparison. So initially, it was set up at Columbia Pictures, Sony, as a feature film with the producer of The Social Network, Scott Rudin, who's also a producer on the doc, and initially co-financed the initial run with Seth. And so it was initially going to be a movie there, but then sort of the birth of the limited series started happening, and and these amazing limited series. And we had so many characters you wanted to go in depth on. It's not just about Tom. It's about Al. It's about Paul. It's about EBBB. It's about all of these characters. And then there's also the Nintendo side. In an hour and a half movie, a uh, narrative style movie, we, I feel like you couldn't really accomplish as much as you want to. So the idea of the limited series came about and we let it expire at Sony. And Seth, our, our other producing partner, Julian Rosenberg, Seth, Evan, Julian, James Weaver, Scott Rune, we all took it to, as a TV project to Legendary Pictures, which does, you know, tons of TV and they set it up at CBS All Access and we have a series in development at CBS All Access with an incredible script by Mike Rosolio for the pilot and we're seeing what happens with this you know it got delayed the Viacom CBS merger happened we were waiting for this movie to come out COVID happened we were really excited for for the series I think it'll be really great to dive into these characters deeper with some of the greatest actors out there you know playing these roles and taking these characters to another level yeah when I saw that Seth Rogen was attached and a kind of a docu-series biopic was in the works, I got really, really excited. And knowing the documentary released, I was hoping that that wouldn't be the end of life for, for console wars, because there are so many great stories and you only have a limited amount of time that you can tell them. And I think the, the pace of the documentary is perfect for what you're telling there, but it leaves room to say, well, what really happened? You know, what else happened with, 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 with him and how did it go down here? And I, I think it's, serves itself well to kind of have a little bit more fun with uh, with some of these characters to kind of personify the way in which they were described by their employees. So I'm looking forward to seeing that for sure. Yeah, like even just one of my, one of my favorite stories from the project and from the book is the when Al Nilsson, the marketing guru at Sega, is in Japan and they're out at dinner and he's offered to eat fugu, which is the fish that, as we know from The Simpsons, if it's not cut right, you might die. So there's like a risk element to the uh, poisonous toxins. And they sort of jokingly say, oh, you should try this. And him being a risk taker says like, okay. And then he does. And then he offers them 
he says, now it's your turn and they won't try it. And that being really indicative of the difference between Sega of America and Sega of Japan for risk taking. But, you know, that's not really directly correlated with gaming. And so, you know, in a documentary, a 90 minute documentary, that's a story that you know, is much harder to fit in. But just as a life tale of, of what these people lived through and who they were and what makes this such a fascinating intersection of ideas and personalities like that, that's one of my favorite stories. And you get to see that a lot more in like a dramatized version. Yeah, I think as long as you get Aaron Sorkin to write the dialogue, anything is possible when it comes to those kinds of scenes. So it'll be a walk and talk with Fugu. Just exactly. Exactly. And And then fall down because that's what happens. You do a walk and talk and then you have physical comedy happen here and there. (laughs) So do you guys play any games? Are you gamers yourself? And did you have a dog in the fight when it comes to Nintendo versus Sega? I wouldn't say we're modern day gamers. We definitely were big gamers during this era and sure we're more storytellers we find cool stories and, and go for them but you know blake is pretty serious on the switch right now i'm playing the nes yeah. classic but for the most part you know we try to compete with uh, people online these days in call of duty or anything like that and they wipe the floor with us because we just we can't we can't stay at their level um, i feel like you know like when you're like like books for kids aaron you must know this like it says like you know for people in certain grades or for this age group like, I feel like I never progressed past gaming in 1995. So, like, I can do stuff on the Switch. I can play the Mario games, mostly play Nintendo games, still find new retro games. But, like, when it comes to first-person shooters and modern stuff, I love I love watching other people play, but I'm so bad at it that I just – it's, it's like, beyond my, my skill level. <laughs> yeah, that's Patrick. Yeah, it's, yeah, right here. yeah. it's very similar. I'm the, I play a little bit of everything and always have, and he's, like, very much – confined to specific things well i'm a console behind so i just now <laughs> back back in january got a ps4 you know that's that's how far behind i, I feel like my entire childhood was being a console behind yeah <laughs> it's a lot <laughs> cheaper is, man. it is it, it really, really is. is yeah <laughs> well as a kid we blamed it on our parents and it, it, it might not be because of the price it might just be because they finally caught on or took that much convincing for them to believe this was a real thing <laughs> Well, what's in the future? So other than the docu-series for Console Wars, what are you guys working on maybe outside of video game related projects? A lot of things, you know, there, there was a lot of stops and starts to the project. And we found, you know, there's a lot of stuff that also couldn't be in the film that might be something we would pursue in one way. Yeah, I guess I, I shouldn't really get too much into that. But in terms of like stuff that, you know, I, I'm currently working on is uh, I'm writing another book, this one about Larry David. So it's very much not about gaming, but it is about my favorite era, apparently, the 90s. And so that's been a, a really fun thing to work on. You know, I have two new docs in the mix I can't really talk about, but then also trying to get this interesting outside-the-box TV series going. So we're just kind of just starting the next round of like, okay, time to start up and, and uh, get going again. <laughs> like it feels like, I mean, look... Uh, Obviously, I love talking about Larry David and Jonah's excited to talk about Docs when he can. But it, uh, one of my favorite shows is BoJack Horseman. And there's like, you know, they finally get Secretariat made. And it's like really exciting. They're like, it's about to come out. And they're like, so what's next for BoJack Horseman? And he's like, next? I just I just spent all these years making this thing. Let's talk about that. But so you should definitely ask the question. And I'm happy to talk. And the new projects are going to take years to come, yeah. too. So yeah. that's that's the really crazy thing. So. There's more, there'll be more soon announcing that at least the Larry David thing he can talk about now. <laughs> well, and it's encouraging to know that you guys are obviously staying busy. The, the series would obviously be the thing that keeps you the, the busiest. And as consumers, we're excited for that. And 
Um, we'd love to have you guys back on the show to talk about the series once it used the pilot yeah. or whatever, and uh, you know what went right and what went better than right because we're all in. We want everything to go right. <laughs> well, one thing we try to do on the show when we interview people is our. If, if you're not familiar with our podcast, we center around talking about movies and how they make us feel. We try to really focus in on the emotional takeaway and let the technical stuff kind of support that. So we always like to ask anybody on our show, what movie is out there that really hits you right in the gut in terms of emotion? Like what's a movie that you would recommend saying, man, this hit me right in the feels. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, while Jonah thinks of an answer, I'll think of an answer, but also buy some time by suggesting BoJack Horseman, which I know. Is <laughs> but like that, like that, you know, it really is one of the greatest animated shows. I have a lot of problems with how it evolved, but like, Watching that show is, it, it, I, I always just felt it's such a good satire of Hollywood and such a good, it, it's such a wonderful, usually upbeat and fun, but also very honest and authentic look at, at depression and mental illness. And I guess, you know, and a lot of things that I think are handled so well that you would never expect from, you know, an animated show like that, especially one with a character who's such a, an ass, like Will Arnett plays perfectly. But so hopefully Jonah has thought of a good movie. Today. Okay, I'll give you, I'll give you a TV one first and then a movie. The TV one, I would say Marvelous Miss Maisel is such a special TV show. And like, like so magical and everything it does that I just can't get enough. I watch it like three times already straight through. So that's one magical TV from a film. One I, I a film I consistently watch over and over is as good as it gets. And that one just gives me the feel like it's every character in that is so well developed and beautiful and, and just sort of the evolution of Jack Nicholson's character. Just, it just, it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. This is a guy that you wouldn't like normally. And you just see sort of, you know, even how he treats the dog in the, in the movie, it's just a, a beautiful, magical movie. Great answer. And I, and I would also recommend, and I hope this doesn't make me sound like a meathead because I'm recommending it for other reasons. I, I recently rewatched a movie that I always loved, which was Demolition Man, which I always like. I mean, the, the Wesley Snipes Stallone fighting stuff, cool. I, I can take or leave that. But I just always loved that movie as the vision of the future, this dystopian future. And I felt like of everything I've ever read and seen in you know, my 38 years alive of here's what the future could be. That was probably like the most, the best prediction of what happened from the talk about winning the chain wars to people losing attention spans and only listening to commercial jingles to just how political correctness has changed the conversation. And I just, I, I would highly recommend that. I, I got, it had a, it makes me feel emotional and, and sort of optimistic that, uh, somebody could guess that right and and that maybe some of the problems today are, are we can still get out of the beauty of that question more like asking it is that every answer is different for different reasons uh we've gotten a chance to interview several people over the last several years and obviously different movies come out of their mouths different shows come out of their mouths but it's the reason why that we find so intriguing because at any given point a movie can hit you right in the gut like i recently rewatched miracle it is absolutely perfect to me and I will lose it. Like I will physically get weepy every time I hear, do you believe in miracles? I mean, yes, I do believe in miracles and I will continue to believe in it, but it's, that's the power of film. And to hear different people come from different places and say, yeah, I would never have picked Bojack Horseman, but to hear why is such a cool thing. And it really kind of helps us just understand the people that we're, we're talking to. And then we love it. We absolutely love it. It's a great question. One more. Is there an exclusivity at all with the doc being on CBS all access in the world we have right now, just with so many different streaming services and with trying to get it out to the masses? I mean, I'm sure it's a contractual thing, but 
Is there a plan to have it more accessible to people who don't have CBS All Access at some point? It is exclusive, but also keep in mind, CBS All Access on January 1 becomes Paramount Plus. That's right. And it may be expanded to the entire Viacom library, the Paramount movies. So it's basically, in essence, you know, CBS All Access is, you know, much like a Peacock or HBO Max for sort of the Warner Brothers properties. And I think this is just the world we live in today where, you know, streaming is, you know, we were, we initially had channels and then we had streaming and now we have streaming. <laughs> now we have streaming channels. Yeah, exactly. Um, internationally, it will be available. I don't believe CBS All Access. I think it's in Canada. I don't think it's elsewhere. So I think that internationally it's going to be distributed across the board in different, different ways as well. Great. Great. Hope, hope we can get more people's eyes on it as many as possible. I and mean, I've watched it three times now and, you know, and it just, it's out of pure joy. And I think that's a credit to the filmmaking. Like you guys, everything you've talked about that you were going for, I feel like you achieved in the way that you told the story because yes, the information is there and that's a piece of it. And Patrick and I love documentaries and we always talk about like a really good doc can be informative. A really good doc can be entertaining, but like the cream of the crop documentary is informative and entertaining in a way that is special and you guys achieve that in my opinion and i'm just i'm so Thank thankful you so much. and so like no i think like part of the reason that i was interested in writing this larry david book is because i just think that my biggest takeaway from larry and that i think a lot of the world has taken is that like in the end quality win you know that that making that sticking to your vision and having quality products is important and so I guess every filmmaker probably does to some degree, but we really wanted a film that felt timeless and whether people discover it today or two years from now, that it would still be that special escape to the 90s. In fact, I think that the hardest decision that Jonah and I made for the film, Jonah, is like at the end, just saying like what the game industry currently was in terms of dollar figure, because we so didn't want to tie it to any specific moment in time. But at the same time, we felt like it was important to show how much it had progressed. But like, like I, I hope, we designed it in a way that like even 10 years from now, if that's when you discover it for the first time, or if you want to watch it again, or hopefully Aaron, you'll get your kids and you'll rewatch it together. Like we made, we wanted it to be a movie that could be enjoyed when you're looking for that warm, special, inspiring, competitive feeling whenever you're in the mood. Well guys, thank you. Before we let you go, do you guys want to plug any socials that you have that you are frequent on so people could give you a follow and make sure they keep up with what you're working on and future stuff? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I'm at Jonah Tulis and Blake at Twitter. And Blake is? I'm Blake to Harris NYC. One of our favorite things about this project is that whenever we've told people what the actual story of Sega Nintendo is, they almost stop paying attention and start thinking of their own experiences with Sega and Nintendo. So we love hearing those stories about, you know, trying to get a game, mowing lawns to get a game, not getting a game on Christmas, getting a game on Christmas. So feel free to share those stories with us. Feel free to ask us any questions. And definitely, you know, if, if you have any interest at all in this film, go to CBS All Access. They offer a free trial. You can sign up that way if you're not already a subscriber. And they have been great to work with. So I couldn't say enough kind things about CBS All Access. Awesome. Well, thank you guys again for joining us. We appreciate it. And we'll be looking forward to the documentary series, the narrative one, once it gets done. Thank you so much. Thank you, Patrick. Well, we'll be thank back then to uh, talk about it. Absolutely. Look forward to it. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. 
A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places, and I'd love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. But be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.